We've lost millions of American manufacturing jobs over the last decade and a half. Who's to blame? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. And this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. One of the points on which both candidates agreed during the presidential campaign was that American manufacturing jobs had been gutted by overseas production and poorly negotiated trade agreements. That's why the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership is now moldering in the dustbin, and the fate of the North American Free Trade Agreement is in doubt. Certain facts aren't in dispute. Around 5.5 million U.S. manufacturing jobs have been lost since 2000. But the reason for that trend is anything but clear. My guest today says that trade isn't the main culprit. He is Michael Hicks, a professor of economics and director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University. According to a study by the center, the real reason for most job losses is increased worker productivity, not trade. Other factors include automation and more efficient supply chains. And it turns out that manufacturing output in the U.S. is higher today than it's ever been. But what do we say to those workers who have lost well-paying jobs? And what's the future look like for the American worker? Here is my conversation with Michael Hicks. Michael Hicks, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. According to President Trump's website, citing research from the Economic Policy Institute, the U.S. has lost nearly a third of its manufacturing jobs since NAFTA came into effect in 1994 and 50,000 factories since China joined the WTO, the World Trade Organization. Other statistics show that 5.6 million manufacturing jobs have been lost in the United States between 2000 and 2010. Yet, I believe you don't believe that those are primarily the cause of trade or offshoring. Could you tell me what is your perception on those job losses? Well, sure. I'll start out by saying all those data are correct. We've lost 5.5 million jobs since about 2000 in manufacturing about 7.2 since the peak annual manufacturing employment in 1979, and trade with China has risen, and trade with Mexico has risen since NAFTA. What is at question is both the cause of NAFTA, WTO, and trade-related losses since 2000 when China joined the received permanent normalized trading relations with the United States. And so I think that my our studies and a number of other studies call question into whether or not most of those jobs have been lost to trade or there's something else going on, most particularly the growth of productivity in manufacturing. 
In fact, you state, I believe, tell me if this is correct, 85% of those job losses can be attributed not to trade, but to automation and technological change. Is that accurate? Our study that looked at manufacturing employment between 2000 and 2010 concluded that roughly 88% of jobs, give or take 5% either way, were due to job losses, which were high, about 5.5 million jobs, were due to increased productivity of manufacturing workers over that time period. That is just, again, 2000 to 2010. There are other studies that come up with similar numbers looking at 1999 to 2013, which was a peak of a pre-recession period in 1999 to a sort of manufacturing recovery, which had occurred by 2013. Uh, either way, and that other study is with Darren Asamoglu at MIT, the two of us sort of have been saying 80 to 90% due to productivity gains, 15 to 20% due to trade. Well, I believe that there was another MIT study that found that rising Chinese imports between 1999 and 2011 cost up to 2.4 million American jobs. So is that in conflict with what you're saying, or is that somehow fit into the picture as you see it? No, no. Well, there are two studies at MIT. One was with Darren Asamoglu, Autor, Hansen, and Dorn that said about 2.4 million jobs, but the actual manufacturing employment was closer to a million jobs. And so that 2.4 million is taking the multiplier. So we think somewhere in the range of a million jobs during that time period. You know, these studies vary a little bit based upon the time period that you choose. It's very difficult because if you pick a bottom of a recession to a bottom of a recession, then you get one set of numbers. If you take a peak period to a bottom of a recession, you get different numbers because manufacturing tends to be very heavily affected by the business downturn. So the timing matters a bit. But I think these two studies have said something like 10 to 20 percent of manufacturing jobs are lost due to trade, the remainder due to automation or other productivity-related gains, not just automation. We'll talk about supply chains and, and other factory-level effects later. But there are also studies that say, gosh, you know, the data on productivity is misstated a little bit. Maybe it's 25% of manufacturing jobs are lost due to trade. There are other studies that suggest that the trade pressure on manufacturers may have accelerated the purchase of automated equipment, technology, and more lean factories. And so that in that way, trade had an indirect effect on this. But there's nobody out there other than a think tank like EPI, versus the think tank that supported Bernie Sanders, by the way, that really says anything more than about half the job losses are, are due to trade. So it ranges from a low of single-digit percents by some older studies all the way up to half, depending on how you indict the role of trade, either directly through import substitution or indirectly by pressuring American businesses to become leaner over the past decade. Your own study is two years old, right? Yes. So do you believe anything's happened since then to change the conclusions of it? Well, manufacturing employment continued to rise. Our studies published in summer of 2015 using data that really ended about 2013. So between 2013 to roughly middle of 2015, middle or the end of 2015, manufacturing employment continued to rise. Manufacturing production in the United States peaked in 2015. We have good data on gross domestic product when you adjust for inflation. So the point that 
American manufacturing workers made more in 2015 than in any previous year in history. Certainly true. We don't have data yet for 2016 on manufacturing GDP, but little hints like automobiles peaked, automobile manufacturing peaked, and we count cars in December, and we do good monthly counting of cars, that sort of thing. So we have some evidence that things were better, but basically two dynamics continue to occur. Trade continues to matter an awful lot. Americans are buying more manufactured goods, but spending a smaller share of their income on manufacturing goods. And automation, improved workplace productivity, and education of workers are all rising. And so those complex factors tend to work together to mean we're going to make more manufactured goods in the United States. We're going to import and export more manufactured goods, but we're not probably going to see employment growth anytime in any significant way in the coming decades. How do you know in your study, in the conclusion of your study, that automation has played such a big role? I mean, what kind of question do you ask and what kind of answer do you get back from the companies reporting you? Do you say, did you cut X number of jobs? Why did you do it? I mean, how does that information come to you? The data are all available. The census has done, and they do an annual census of manufacturing. There are very distinct data available that are preserved in the joint scientific project back to the 1960s, really 1958, with the National Bureau of Economic Research. This is this large nonprofit that maintains the Business Cycle Dating Committee. There are data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on employment. There are secondary data that uh, is reported through the Bureau of Economic Analysis. The numbers don't match perfectly, but the trends are identical. And so we use the aggregate national data at each of the industry levels. We subtracted out the growth of non-value-added products. So almost nothing really is made in any one place. The phone I'm talking to you on has probably been manufactured in five or six different countries, assembled maybe in the United States. The raw materials come from another dozen countries. And so we have to net out the contribution of intermediate goods in this. And so we just track the growth in output per worker. And if you if you think about this, it shouldn't be too surprising what it took, let's say, 100 manufacturing workers to make in 1970s now being done with uh, 40 or 50 workers in terms of inflation-adjusted value of goods produced. So if we didn't have Americans buying more goods and foreigners buying more of our goods, we'd have a lot fewer manufacturing jobs than we now have. Well, I had heard in the so-called second industrial revolution that this nation experienced a huge increase in worker productivity for a period of time in our history, but that more recently that productivity has not improved by any means by, by that amount at all, that it's slacked off or that it's leveled off. Is, is that incorrect? It's had very short periods of rapid growth. I mean, I should say that when economists talk about automation or productivity, we have in our minds some aggregate effect in the workplace. On the shop floor, it looks very different than this. And so I'll explain that in a minute. But yeah, there has been a stalling of manufacturing productivity growth. It's still growing, but it's not growing at the two and a half to three and a half percent rate that sort of occurred from the end of the Second World War through about 2000. One of the things that has caused productivity growth at the average worker level might be missed by the quality of how we measure 
a computer, right? So what the Bureau of Labor Statistics attempts to do is to measure the quality adjusted value of what we buy. So I'm talking to you on a phone that was installed with a handset here at Ball State University in the mid-1990s. It probably cost a couple hundred dollars. It's fancy. It's got a lot of buttons on it. Think about, compare that piece of equipment to my cell phone, which was cheaper, and you can see how radically difficult it is to make good quality adjustment value-added measures of a particular product. So there's no doubt that the last few years, four or five years, has really seen a productivity downswing, not just in manufacturing, but you know, more heavily in labor-intensive industries as well. And I think that's really one of the puzzles of all of this. Do you get a sense of what form this automation is taking and which industries are most affected by it? It's taken several forms. If you're in steel production, it is a revolutionary shift away from the late 19th, early 20th century steel mills that were in Gary, Indiana, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Birmingham, Alabama, and have been replaced by mini mills. And so we're actually producing as much American steel as we did in, say, 1960, but we're doing with about a quarter of the workforce. So there, it's a very obvious technological adjustment in how production works. If you're on a shop floor at a factory, you're assembling something, it's a little bit different. Part of it is robotics, automated equipment that is digitally managed, which I think, by the way, is the, the big future of all this. But a lot of it is also, how is the, the shop set up? Is the union been able to feather bed jobs like they did in 1960? And the answer is no. So maybe there's 10% fewer workers who are sitting around idly recovering from a hangover. And at the same time, the warehouse facility, instead of being uh, having your workstation restocked by a lot of people who know where the products are in a large warehouse, maybe it's being restocked by conveyor belt, by an automated trolley, or by uh, artificial intelligence in a small truck that moves in and out of the warehouse. And so that's very different. And then if you go to the big processing plant, like for food or a warehouse at Amazon.com, which isn't strictly manufacturing, but you can see where this is going, there may be no people on the back. The tomatoes come in, they are unloaded at the facility, they are sorted by automatically by machine, by size. The, the ones that they don't want are processed and scraped and heated and canned and the whole process, the only human intervention is somebody's oiling the machines or fixing a stoppage or providing some calibration if they think the temperature is off or, or that sort of thing. So the process can be both very automated and involving digital technology. It could be the way labor works and the relationship about the number of people on the shop floor. And then it can be the process oriented where what are all the things that are happening in the supply chain, not just outside the factory, but within it as well. What has been the impact on wages? The wages have not changed a great deal. What I think I was referring to was sort of the change in the composition of workers. So if you go back, and we haven't published this study yet, we're working on it right now. If you go back to 2000, and you split manufacturing workers into three types. It's called low-skilled, medium-skilled, and high-skilled. And you use wages, say. Low-skilled is under 15 bucks an hour. Medium-skilled is 15 to 20 bucks an hour. And then high-skilled is over 20. And you look at the number of people in those occupations 
using that as the measure in 2000, what you see is that those occupations that were low-skilled in 2000 now have 40% fewer employees in them. So they got devastated by the Great Recession, by permanent normalized trade relation with China, by NAFTA, whatever you want, those are gone in big numbers. If you look at the middle-skilled jobs, they're down about 14%. So the occupations that were paying between $15 and $20 an hour back in 2000 are about 15% down. And then if you look at those occupations that were high-skilled in 2000, they're up about 375%. They went from only a quarter million to over a million and a half jobs. And so what or 1.1 million jobs. So those that change is exactly what the economic models that talk about trade and automation would suggest, because the United States is heavily endowed with high-skilled, high-wage workers. They have a $110,000 high school diploma underneath their belt, typically. Although by 2007, half of all manufacturing workers had actually been to college. They have a lot of public capital. So we're going to have a comparative advantage in the very high-skilled, highly productive jobs, and we're going to have a comparative disadvantage in assembly operations, low-value-added agriculture, those sorts of things. And that's where the job losses have been clustered. So it's not just manufacturing jobs that have been lost. It's a big transfer. And I would argue that most of those high-wage manufacturing workers were not employed in manufacturing at the start of 2000. We didn't see a big retooling of workers. What we saw is people leaving college after a year, a couple of years at technical college or getting a bachelor's degree and going into manufacturing while the high school-related jobs just went away. Well, I'm hearing that in uh, that we are experiencing a shortage of highly skilled workers in some manufacturing sectors. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. I caveat carefully that economists like to say shortages only occur when government gets involved. It's really a mismatch between what workers are willing to work at and what businesses are willing to pay. And we, we've documented that in a couple of studies on automation, particularly in the higher level jobs, there seems to be some shortage. I worry, however, that on occasion we might hear anecdote from a business that there's a worker shortage when it simply may be that businesses are hoping to hire people at a wage that workers are not willing to work at. So that's not a shortage. It's simply a, a business model that's not consistent with the reality of labor markets. So again, the 750,000 manufacturing jobs that you found that the economy has added since the end of the recession, those are higher end to, to a great degree jobs in terms of wages? Yes, yes. So from 2009, the recession saw a dramatic drop in manufacturing employment. And even when employment didn't drop, it effectively did. We didn't make any cars in the summer of 2009, even though the big auto dealers continued to employ people and pay them to clean up the shop and uh, those sorts of things. And so the recovery since then has been one that's marked by a very different type of manufacturing worker. And as I mentioned, 2007 was the year when half of all manufacturing workers had been to college. And so the growth in the educational attainment of manufacturing workers had been profound. There had been no growth in high school graduates or less. In fact, there's, the U.S. hasn't created a job for somebody with a high school diploma, a net job for a high school diploma or less since the early 90s. And so 
we've seen a sharp increase in demand for higher skilled workers in manufacturing. Usually think about a two-year degree or something close to that, or a bachelor's degree in, in an engineering or technology-related discipline is the typical new manufacturing worker today. And I think that trend is accelerating, although I'm not sure it's always going to be that way. So you say that the U.S. manufacturing base is not in decline. Cold comfort to the people who have actually lost jobs. What do we say to them? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, the the fact that the simple raw fact is that manufacturing output in the United States is higher than it's ever been. That manufacturing employment is lower than it was when I was in high school in the late 1970s. And so it is significantly lower, a third lower than it was in the late 1970s. And so if you are a worker, and I would say also workers around workers who have lost jobs in manufacturing, that's very difficult. And one of the, uh, some of the authors of the MIT study I mentioned, David Autor and others, have recently looked at the polarization of voting areas, and they found this very strong correlation between loss of manufacturing jobs that were exposed to trade and support for either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, who were both seen as rather extreme figures on the, the trade issue. So it's certainly carrying over into the way public policy is being developed in voting patterns. And it, if you live in Muncie, Indiana, or Kokomo, or anywhere else in the Midwest that has really been clobbered, it's evident every day you drive home from work. The inevitable conclusion of what you're saying has to be that protectionism is not going to solve our nation's problems economically or in the manufacturing sector. Right. And, well, I'm a professor, so I'll caveat everything. I do think there's room for better trade deals. I do not think that, for example, when uh, the president argues that he needs to have better deals with China or Mexico, bilateral trade deals are probably the route of the future. And the reason for this is that multilateral trade deals sound really good. They sound really cool. They're great for the State Department and the Department of Commerce negotiators. The problem with them is that the enforcement mechanisms for countries that violate these rules are so cumbersome and so lengthy that if you're a business owner or an investor or you work on a shop floor in a, in a industry that was having a cheater, it could be a decade before you find any relief through the enforcement mechanism. And well, as you well know, that your job could be long gone and your house foreclosed upon and you looking for work somewhere else before the WTO weighs in. Bilateral trade agreements allow for a lot more rapid negotiation. The downside is it's harder to get some of the concessions in bilateral agreements. But I don't think there's going to be any great relief for this, in part because the problem that we have is being echoed in Mexico. Uh, over the past several months, I've spoken with a number of reporters in Mexico. They're very unhappy that manufacturing employment growth has been so slow in Mexico. It, manufacturing employment is exactly the same share of overall employment as it was in 1994. It's concentrated in a couple of places, but productivity gains in manufacturing Manufacturing in Mexico have been very rapid, and they are in China as well. There are now growing Rust Belt towns outside of Beijing where productivity has eliminated a lot of workers. And so this is a global, not U.S. phenomenon occurring. Michael Hicks, I want to thank you so much for being with us today to share the conclusions of Ball State's Center for Business and Economic Research and to give us this interesting perspective on the state of U.S. manufacturing and the economy. Thank you very much for being with us. Charmed to be with you.
That was my conversation with Michael Hicks of Ball State University, talking about the reasons behind lost manufacturing jobs in the U.S. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.